You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1906th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 24th of November. The editor of this edition is Claire Mellor. The producer is Ruth Hill and your readers are David and Carol Goodrum. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now for the headlines. Mum leaves hospital a year after catching COVID-19. Meat plant to close, putting hundreds of jobs at risk. Killer jailed as four-year fight for justice ends. Patient safety a priority as nurses set to strike in Suffolk. A mum who became severely ill after contracting COVID-19 while 36 weeks pregnant, has returned home following more than a year in hospital. Nicoletta Tuna, 30, of Colchester, was unvaccinated when she caught coronavirus in October 2021. Her condition deteriorated and she was admitted to Colchester Hospital, where her daughter, Thea, was delivered by emergency caesarean. Ms Tuna was then placed in a medically induced coma and in November 2021, she was transferred to Royal Papworth Hospital in Cambridge. She spent 299 days on an ECMO machine, a specialist intensive care life support machine which pumps oxygen into a patient's blood, allowing the lungs to rest. In February 2022, Ms Tuna was woken from her coma, by which point her baby was nearly four months old. Ms Tuna spent so long in hospital that she learned English while on the ward, with the help of staff translating from, from Romanian. Ms Tuna said, after the C-section, I remember nothing. I woke up and was being nursed by a Romanian healthcare support worker, and she spoke to me. I asked her what day is it, and she said, February the 22nd, 2022. I couldn't believe it. It was too much. I was told my chances of survival were very small. Nobody expected me to live. I was so, so poorly. When Thea was six months old, Miss Tuna was strong enough to be able to hold her daughter for the first time. It has been very difficult as I have not been able to spend time with my daughter or my six-year-old son, but I can now spend the rest of my life with them and my husband thanks to all of the people at Royal Papworth, said Miss Tuna. I didn't speak any English when I was first admitted, but all the staff here have been have helped me in many ways, including helping me with my English, as well as throwing a first birthday party for Thea, which was just amazing. While I was in critical care, the staff wrote well wishes in a notebook for me, which I will treasure forever. They've all written beautiful words. They're now my second family. My wish is to live with my children and see them grow up, something I didn't think I would get the chance to do. A Bury St Edmunds meat plant is to close, it has been confirmed, placing hundreds of jobs at risk of redundancy. 
Pilgrims UK has decided to shut its berry site, operating as Dale's Head Foods in Eastern Way, in a phased process. Another of the company's sites at Colville in Leicestershire will also shut as part of the firm's recovery plan. A Pilgrim spokesman said, Following the conclusion of collective and one-to-one consultations, Pilgrims has made the decision to implement the proposals to close our Berry and Colville manufacturing sites. This will be a phased process, while the transfer of products to alternative sites takes place. The decision to close the Berry St Edmunds site impacts around 280 employees. We would like to thank all of those involved in the process for their outstanding professionalism and high quality levels of service maintained during what we recognise has been a challenging time, said the spokeswoman. We are working closely with those at risk of redundancy, providing them with support and guidance, including details of alternative opportunities within the Pilgrims UK network. Potential notice periods and all other matters relating to the potential for loss of jobs have been discussed on an individual basis during the consultation process. In September, the firm announced the proposed closures and embarked on a consultation process as it launched a business recovery plan across its UK operations. It said the UK pig sector had faced the most challenging time in its history over the past 18 months due to increases in production costs, falling pig prices, a decline in demand, labour shortages and restrictions on the ability to export from some sites. The ongoing challenges had resulted in Pilgrims UK recording an operating loss of £16 million for the year to December 26, 2021. It proposed to close underutilised sites and transfer the lamb and bacon operations to other Pilgrims UK locations. The family of a retired dock worker who died after being attacked as he returned home after a night out at a pub has called for lessons to be learned after a four-year fight for justice. Speaking after their father's killer was jailed for 17 years for manslaughter, Clive Wyard's three children said they believed from the outset that their 74-year-old father had been attacked. However, they claim that Suffolk Police initially made wrong and harmful assumptions about what had happened to him after he was found collapsed on his driveway in Valley Road, Ipswich, in July 2018. Jacqueline Garnham, Joanne Wyard and Desmond Wyard claimed many protocols were not followed and killer Rhys Burrows could easily have got away with his crime. Judge Martin Levitt said the family had been persistent in their quest for the truth, while Detective Inspector Lewis Creek said, paid tribute to the tremendous bravery they showed throughout the investigations. And bosses at West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust have reassured patients that their safety is a key priority after the Royal College of, of Nursing voted to strike. The Trust, which runs Newmarket and West Suffolk hospitals, said it was working to support nursing staff. Andre Santos, Suffolk branch chair of the RCN, has also confirmed that measures will be put in place 
to protect crucial NHS services such as accident and emergency, ITU and dialysis. Mr Santos, who lives in Stowmarket and has been nursing for 14 years, explained how he had seen his colleagues struggling. He said, Lots of RCN members are doing bank shifts as overtime to make ends meet. We can't keep going like this. A lot of people are getting fed up of it. I know of nurses and healthcare assistants in Suffolk going to food banks. It is shocking they can't afford meals because they are the ones looking after people. Mr Santos, who said he believed the NHS was missing nerfers, explained... We will strike, but we will ensure the strike will be safe. It is not just about the money. It is because we need to make the profession more appealing. And it is not just about recruiting people. It is about looking after the nurses and healthcare assistants we already have. Jeremy Over, Executive Director of Workforce and Communications at West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, said... Following the announcement of the result of the Royal College of Nursing's ballot, it has been confirmed that our nursing colleagues have voted in favour of taking industrial action. We understand the issues that underlie this campaign and know that for many colleagues who voted, they have done so reluctantly and with a heavy heart. We have received assurances from the RCN that patient safety will be prioritised and that our emergency care services will be protected. In partnership with union representatives, we are working to ensure that patients and colleagues feel supported. We have tried and tested plans in place to manage any disruption, including industrial action, so we can care for all those who need us. RCN members at East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust, which runs Ipswich Hospital, also voted to strike. West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust said it would be working with the uh, North Essex Foundation Trust to develop a consistent and collaborative approach to the strike action, representing nurses, healthcare assistants and some midwives the RCN now has a six-month mandate to strike. The RCN balloted for strike action to rectify years of real-terms pay cuts that they believe are pushing people out of the nursing profession and putting patients' safety at risk. This story about lack of NHS dental services continues. A Bury St Edmunds-based charity is launching dental care sessions after realising the challenges its guests faced accessing NHS treatment. Berry Drop-In has planned two dental treatment sessions for registered guests due to a lack of NHS dental care available in West Suffolk. The charity is funding two visits provided by Community Dental Service to offer emergency dental treatment to people in severe dental pain with the aim of treating 10 to 12 people at each session. Sabine Dornbush Berry drop-in general manager said, Many of our guests haven't seen a dentist for years and it affects their confidence, as well as forcing them to live with severe dental pain. We can help to break down these barriers by supplying dental treatment. We can offer dental treatment to the most marginalised people in society 
The innovative project has been praised by the West Suffolk Council Rough Sleeper Service and NHS Health Outreach Team. Berry Drop-In, a registered charity supporting people who are homeless or vulnerably housed in Berry, is appealing for donations to help fund future sessions. To donate, go to www.berrydropin.org forward slash donate. A Suffolk post office, which has been closed for five months, is set to reopen. Great Waldingfield Post Office in Lavenham Road has been closed since June due to operational reasons. However, it will reopen on Thursday, November the 24th with the same postmaster. The opening hours will be 10am to 5.30pm Monday to Friday and 9am to 1pm on Saturdays. A man arrested after town centre businesses had their door locks superglued has been released on bail. The 60-year-old was questioned by police after a number of firms in Bury St Edmunds town centre discovered their front door locks had been blocked with glue during the past two weeks. One building was targeted three times. A man was arrested on suspicion of criminal damage but has been released on police bail until December the 5th pending further investigations. The affected businesses are all based at the top of Abbeygate Street and include Beaver Sales and Lettings, Jabu Design, Errington Legal, Jacobs Allen Accountants and Damson and Wild Bar and Restaurant. The superglue incidents also extended to a building on Cornhill. Three ticket machines in Buttermarket were also rendered inoperable after the coin slots were superglued. All the incidents which happened on October the 28th, November the 3rd and the 6th were between 9am and 5.30pm. Businesses say the vandalism has cost them hundreds of pounds in repairs and replacement keys. Figures from West Suffolk Council has shown it has helped more than 800 households who were homeless or facing homelessness in the past year. The authority used a variety of support, including emergency, temporary and specialist support rough sleeper accommodation, to ensure there were enough beds in place to meet demand. But it warns it is preparing for a possible increase next year and is always looking to secure more access to accommodation. Councillor Sarah Mildmay-White, Cabinet Member for Housing and Health, said, By investing in both accommodation and support, we have, over recent years, reduced the number of people who are rough sleeping in West Suffolk. In the year up to the end of October, the Council helped prevent 212 households from becoming homeless, while it has helped another 626 through temporary accommodation and back into a more settled and permanent home. By November the 1st, West Suffolk had nine rough sleepers compared to 36 when the council first set up its rough sleeper support service in 2018. A demonstration against nuclear weapons was held at an airbase on Saturday the 19th of November. A similar protest happened in May earlier this year with hundreds of supporters gathering at the base after reports that RAF Lakenheath 
was set for a multi-million dollar infrastructure upgrade, according to CND. Kate Hudson, CND General Secretary, said the return of US nuclear bombs to Britain and the spending of millions of dollars on upgrading NATO bases across Europe only undermines further the possibility of lasting global peace and security. The US is the only country to host nuclear weapons in other countries and appears willing to sacrifice these hosts in the event of a nuclear war with Russia. Whether it's the UK's own nuclear weapons in Scotland or US ones in Suffolk, the presence of, of, of nukes in Britain doesn't make us any safer. They make us a target. CND's message is loud and clear. US nuclear weapons are not welcome back in Britain and we will campaign with all our might to stop them. A spokesman for RAF Lakenheath said, we are aware of and monitoring the CND protest. RAF Lakenheath has always been and continues to be committed to defending lawful freedom of speech and expression. However, anyone who unlawfully enters RAF Lakenheath will be detained by MDP. Anglian Water may be scrutinised over sewage after almost 300 spills into rivers across Baber in the last year. A motion to question Anglian Water bosses about their plans to tackle sewage discharge will be considered by Baber District Council next week. The Green Party motion, supported by Council Leader and Independent Conservative Councillor John Ward, comes after the Sewage Trust reported sewage spills from 288 storm overflows in Baber last year had a combined duration of 1,861 hours. Storm overflows release extra rainwater and wastewater into rivers or seas when the sewerage system is at risk of being overwhelmed during heavy rainfall. Green Party councillor Robert Lindsay, who will put the motion forward, said, In March, water regulator Offwatt highlighted its concerns about how Anglian Water was running its sewage treatment works. The issue is that no one is really checking that Anglian Water is cleaning up the sewage from its storm overflows. As a council, we have a responsibility to ensure that new housing developments do not cause unacceptable levels of water pollution. If our motion is successful, we will be asking Anglian Water to clarify in its responses to major planning applications which treatment works will be managing the sewage. We will also ask whether it has the information available to assess the impact on the number or duration of sewage discharges into local rivers or seas, and if it does have this information, to share it. In a recent presentation to investors, it stated its commitment to ensuring its sewage treatment works do not harm rivers and to enhancing the region's rivers, so I hope Anglian Water will comply. Councillor Lindsay, who represents the Northwest Cosford Ward from his home in, in Bilderston, will put forward the motion at the next Baber District Council meeting on Tuesday. And now for some letters. The first is from Graham Day of Stowmarket. 
I had to smile seeing the headline on the front page of the Berry Free Press, November the 4th, stating that the end is in sight for City Fibre Works disruption. A word of caution here. Travelling often myself through Ipswich, disruption caused by roadworks undertaken by various utilities is ongoing, and very frustratingly, Ipswich has resurrected its tag of a few years ago as UK capital of traffic signals. City Fibre has been active in installing the fibre network. I'm told by many friends in Ipswich that when the technology does not work, the employees return and dig everything up again. There is also, apparently, a revolving door approach with staff who have worked for one company leaving when the contracts are finished and then are hired by competitors. As Victor Meldrew memorably would have said, I don't believe it. Time will no doubt tell. And this letter is from Barry Peters, who is the editor of the Berry Free Press, and concerning Matt Hancock. Even for a reported £400,000 fee, I expected an 11th hour change of heart from West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock. I expect a number of his constituents across West Suffolk wanted similar too, when he popped up on I'm a, celebra- I'm a, a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Those, visits, those voters who elected him maybe wanted him to stay home, save lives and protect their futures. There's a cost of living crisis, bank rates are rocketing and it's painful just to turn on the central heating. So for a Suffolk Member of Parliament to go prancing around a TV set when his own home town council has called for him to resign is a strange scenario indeed. I've never come across anything like it in 40 years of journalism. Mr Hancock said he could be reached up until the point he went into into the jungle for urgent constituency matters. That might feel like a cop-out if you're battling with a council issue back home. Send worries to Matt Hancock, care of The Jungle, Australia, and hope for the best, I presume. I applaud Mr Hancock's desire to donate to charity and to shine a light on dyslexia. But all that, along with a few more voter surgeries, could just as easily happen in the confines of West Suffolk. So, stay safe, Matt, and please come home soon. Your constituents need you. This letter is from Malcolm Searle of Bury St Edmunds. It's entitled Platitudes, Lies and Hypocrisy. So, journalism matters to the present culture secretary, very free press November the 4th. It also mattered to the one who was in post a year ago, very free press November the 5th, 2021. Their names are irrelevant. They regurgitate the same rhetoric, the same platitudes, the same lies and hypocrisy. Another year on, and Julian Assange, foremost journalist-truth-teller, political prisoner of the 21st century, remains in the notorious Belmarsh prison, awaiting another mockery of British judicial process and a potential 175 years in a penitentiary in the so-called land of the free. Injustice is perpetuated. Evidence of war crimes and human rights abuses are not investigated. Journalism suffers, truth suffers, and society 
further degenerates as corruption becomes institutionalised, embedded in our culture. And uh, an, another letter from Brian Davis of Berries and Edmonds, also about Matt Hancock. Can there be anyone who doesn't have cause to regret how they dealt with a particular situation during their lifetime? And, with that in mind, could we judge Matt Hancock's a performance in I'm a Celebrity on the here and now rather than any errors of judgment he made while working in government? Would it be fair to say that, despite the ill feeling initially directed against him, he has measured up to every Bush-Tucker trial, plus what must have been no less than the excruciating pain of being stung by a scorpion, with courage and good humour, well beyond expectations, and, in so doing, has earned unexpected respect. How Matt coped with Mundy's trial of being entombed underground in a very confined space, tasked with trying to match keys to padlocks accompanied by no less than 30 snakes and other creepy crawlies, defies belief. His inner strength belies his not very robust physique. Put the knives away and hats off to Matt. And now back to some general news. And again, concerning Matt Hancock. Because Piers Morgan broadcasts from Matt Hancock's local pub, which is the Cock Inn in Little Thurlow. Piers Morgan has spoken to frustrated residents about man Matt Hancock's jungle antics during a broadcast from his local pub. The broadcaster ventured to the Cock Inn in Little Thurlow near Haverhill on Tuesday to talk to the people of West Suffolk who believe their MP should not be appearing on ITV's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He said Matt Hancock shouldn't be taking part in I'm a Celebrity. He's not a celebrity. He's a shamed politician who caused thousands of deaths with his decision-making and who had to resign in disgrace just a few months ago. Morgan is not alone in this opinion, as campaign groups 38 Degrees and COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice flew a banner over the jungle which read, COVID Bereaved, say, get out of here. The controversial MP who took part in various Bush-Tucker trials this week, which awarded his fellow campers with meals, says he is taking part in the programme to raise awareness of dyslexia, a condition he lives with, and to connect more widely as a politician, he will also be donating money to charity. And um, this is headed a truly special team. And it concerns Darren Marshall, who is a community engagement officer for Sudbury. On joining the police all those years ago as a special constable, little did I know that I would be forging friendships and connections with colleagues that would last to this day. This continues with our fantastic current group of Sudbury Special Constables, who, I am proud to share, have just been awarded our Chief Constable's Team of the Month Award within our Suffolk Policing family. Our Acting Chief Constable, Rachel Curtin, will be visiting Sudbury Station in the next few days to thank our cohort of specials in person. This is the first time that a special constabulary team has won this in-house recognition, which says a lot about their effort and commitment 
in helping to keep our community safe. To date, in 2022, Special Sergeant Richard Everett and Special Constables Jim Woodward, Sarah Robinson, Megan Gardner and Tina Barber have notched up over 2,600 hours alongside us. This is a fantastic effort and allows us to swell the number of units that we put out on a shift. As a collective, they have repeatedly gone above and beyond the baseline number of hours that are expected of them, helping with detainees and conducting out-of-force inquiries. This high-performing team will be boosted in the next few weeks by two new specials. If you are interested in volunteering in a community role like no other, I encourage you to get in contact with us. You could check your eligibility and what the role would entail via our, webs- our website at www.suffolk.police.uk. We were all pleased this month when Sudbury man Justin Dyer was sentenced to a lengthy prison sentence for, amongst other matters, seven counts of neglect and cruelty to dogs under the Animal Welfare Act. Dyer now has a court-imposed 15-year banning order from owning or keeping animals, as well as being ordered to pay around £6,200 in costs and compensation. I was present on the day we uncovered the deplorable state in which Dyer had been keeping his dogs, and trust me, as a dog owner, I wish I could unsee the filth and squalid conditions he was keeping them in. Please remember, folks, to only acquire dogs from reputable breeders or rehoming centres. Otherwise, you could be fueling another situation like this. Take care. Now, here is an opinion by Rachel Keerton, who is the Chief Constable of Suffolk Constabulary. I was absolutely delighted and privileged to be appointed as Suffolk's Chief Constable earlier this month. I am thrilled to be the first female Chief Constable in the county and to be leading such a fantastic organisation with such hard-working officers, staff and volunteers. Looking ahead, I am totally committed to helping lead Suffolk Constabulary with confidence and optimism and I am really proud and honoured to be part of such a great force. The start of October saw officers across West Suffolk, along with many others across the county, participate in the National County Lines Intensification Week and Stowmarket's own locality inspector was responsible for coordinating this week of action for the West Suffolk area. The results in West Suffolk were a highlight for the county and demonstrated all the hard work and planning that went into this intensification week. The week focused on a number of ways to tackle this problem. Pursuing criminals, protecting the vulnerable, upskilling officers and partners through additional training and prevention in the community through education. A day of action took place in Stowmarket, including a drugs warrant being executed at a residential address during which three individuals were arrested and Class A drugs, cash and mobile phones seized. Two further unrelated addresses were attended by officers on the same day and they arrested three individuals and seized three kilograms of cannabis, cash and mobile phones. During the week, officers also took action to protect vulnerable members of the community 
by visiting residential addresses which are at risk of being cuckooed. The practice of drug dealers taking over another person's home to deal drugs from. These visits provide occupants with some reassurance and it allows the police to continue to build on intelligence which assists in future warrants and arrests, educating partners and members of the community on county lines so that they are better able to identify signs of those that they work with who may become involved in this lifestyle. They also spent time at West Suffolk College presenting to hundreds of students throughout the day on the topics of county lines, knife crime and exploitation. The whole week was a great success and demonstrated our commitment to working with partners and the community to make West Suffolk a safe place for all. As we approach the Christmas season, policing once again steps up its campaign to keep all people safe during this period of celebration. Working with industry and agency partners collectively to ensure people enjoy the festivities safely, our aim will be to prevent crime from taking place. We will focus on tackling the drivers of criminality, including the supply and use of drugs, for example, Operation Fletch, working partnerships. We also are providing support, guidance and information to both members of the public, for example, the newly designed Ask for Angela posters which have been updated with QR codes for detailed advice and further links, as well as the creation of briefing sheets for venues which provide advice on schemes that can support them in providing a safe operating environment. We know our industry partners in particular are keen to ensure safety is a priority, and we have been helping them to be better equipped and informed to identify early signs of disorder and vulnerability such as spiking. Having access to the right tools and information will help them not only prevent crime, but also help us bring offenders to justice when criminality does occur. Opticians wins Branch of the Year accolade. A Bury St Edmunds Opticians is celebrating for a second year running after winning a Branch of the Year award from Scrivens Opticians and Hearing Care. The branch in Abigail Street won the accolade after clinching the title again at Scriven's annual conference and award ceremony. The branch was recognised for the team's first-class customer care, general positive attitude, optical and hearing expertise and all-round professionalism. Now we have some news in brief. First is entitled Fundraiser Hosts Sixth and Final Quiz Night. A Bury St Edmunds fundraiser who has donated nearly £4,000 for the Hearing Dogs for Deaf People charity staged her sixth and final quiz night at the weekend. Margot Harrison, pictured right with her dog Lanus, welcomed 54 people and four hearing dogs to the Christmas themed event at the United Reformed Church in Whiting Street on Saturday. The quiz total for the night was £782.30, which took Margot's total for the night she has hosted to £3,908.65 for the charity. First glimpse of the newly widened Town Centre Link. Shoppers in Bury St Edmunds have been given a first glimpse of the widened Town Centre Link alongside the multi-million pound post office redevelopment. 
The scaffolding is now down to reveal market market thoroughfare, which has been widened by more than 50% to 3.8 metres. West Southwark Council has invested £8.4 million into the project. Work began in September 2020. The festive season is kicking in now. Christmas trees are back at Blackthorpe Barn in Ruffham. This weekend, visitors can choose their own Ruffham Estate Christmas tree straight from the plantation. From 10am to 4pm, visitors who have pre-booked their arrival time can meander through thousands of trees until they find their perfect specimen. For more information, go to www.blackthorpebarn.com. And this feature is um, uh, from the founder of Elsie and Tom. For Emma Pratt, founder of luxury Suffolk home fragrance brand Elsie and Tom, scents have always played an important part in creating a Christmassy ambience. Christmas is all about exotic spices, festive food, log fires and being cosy with the family, she says. When the children were small, they used to help me add the spices and ingredients to the turkey. Now I have to entice them with a mulled wine. But it's traditions like this that are so important to our family, she says. And they have provided the inspiration for her Christmas and winter home fragrance ranges. As Emma explains, fragrance is very personal. We all have a unique fragrance footprint, like a fingerprint, she says. Some people like citrus and floral fragrances, while others prefer more earthy, woody notes. Fragrance can evoke so many memories and emotions. We have customers who write to us with detailed stories about how our fragrances have touched them in some personal way. For example, remind them of time with a loved one. I never thought for a moment this would happen. To energise, which you might need during Twixmas, the time between Boxing Day and New Year, which is traditionally spent in front of the telly with a tub of celebrations, Emma says to look out for fragrances containing orange, mint, mandarin, basil, rose and bergamot. For relaxation, and let's face it, the festive season can have its stresses, Go for blends containing sandalwood, lavender, cedarwood and vetiver. And dotting scented candles around, perhaps as part of a mantelpiece decoration or table centrepiece, also creates a twinkly, laid-black glow which is an invitation to decompress. We have three fragrances which are ideal for the festive season. Oriental orange, patchouli and wood, and my all-time festive favourite, Festive Calm, says Emma. Cinnamon, orange and lemon, essential oil, sorry, the fragrance Calm, the Festive Calm fragrance is a blend of frankincense, clove, cinnamon, orange and lemon, essential oils, and it truly embodies the fragrances of the Christmas season. Emma knows firsthand how powerful scent can be. Out of the blue, the day before her 42nd birthday, she had a stroke, which left her unable to speak, see and walk without the help of others or a Zimmer frame. 
Aromatherapy and blending essential oils became a key component of my recovery and still helps me today as I continue to suffer with chronic stroke fatigue, which can be extremely debilitating, she says. My fragrance blends have been designed by me to help me relax or to feel more energised and focused when I need it. I have always had a very sensitive sense of smell, but I never realised that I could harness it to create something that others could enjoy. I would use essential oils like orange and mint in my shower gel to give me an energising boost, or lavender and geranium oils in my moisturiser to help me relax and sleep at night. Before I knew it, friends would ask me if I could blend fragrances using vetiver and patchouli, so I got blending in earnest. Emma, who lives in Ipswich with her husband, children Tom and Elsa, and their beloved Staffy, Rosie, started making candles in her kitchen as something to do during the pandemic. For a long time before lockdown, I was inadvertently well on my way to blending with wax and creating Elsie and Tom as a home fragrance brand, she says. Having worked in marketing since leaving university, I hadn't had the time to be really creative for a very long time. Lockdown gave me the space and time to do something for me. The first candle I made was awful, looked horrid, didn't smell, and I realised there was much more science and skill that went into making a candle that looked good, but also had an excellent scent throw. I was hooked, and our house soon filled with all my failed attempts. I did loads of research and undertook numerous tests of various waxes and oils, and finally, with the help of my husband, found the magic formula, she says. She uses a 100% natural soya wax for a clean burn and good scent throw and high-grade essential oils. As Emma explains, there are more than 16 stages to making each candle, but the two most important are the accurate blending of the essential oils to create our unique fragrance blends and ensuring the wax is at the correct temperature when adding the oil blends to the wax. This temperature, which has taken hundreds of tests to get right, ensures the wax and oils blend, otherwise the fragrance oil sits on the top layers of the soya wax and only provides fragrance for a few hours when the candle is lit. We have perfected our blending process, so the fragrance lasts to the very end of the candle, so you get the full benefit and hours of fragrance in your home, she says. This feature says that it's one of nature's most exciting autumn spectacles as male, male deer go head-to-head -head in the battle for a harem of hinds. Here's how and where to experience the deer rut in Suffolk by Jane Lindill. Most of the time you'd never know that Suffolk has England's largest red deer population, not to mention considerable numbers of fallow and roe deer, muntjac, Chinese water deer and some seeker too. Suffolk's six deer species are usually difficult to see, phantoms from the forest and field that prefer to stay safely hidden away. But come the autumn, these wonderful beasts make their presence known in a most spectacular fashion, although we humans are not the object of their ostentatious behaviour. We are simply lucky spectators to an electrifying display of power and raw ambition that is the mighty deer rut. 
The rut starts in late September, peaks in October and lingers into November. In Suffolk, we have some of the best places to see it, at RSPB Minsweir, where a herd of several hundred of the biggest species, the mighty red deer, roams the heaths, woods and reed beds around the reserve at Wesselton Heath and on the Helmingham estate. For months leading up to October, sexually mature red deer stags prepare for the most important contest of their lives, the battle for dominance over other stags and possession of a harem of fertile females. The fight starts vocally. As large herds of hinds, the females, gather, you can hear the stirring, deep-throated bellow of huge stags battling for supremacy and smell their musky scent. The males also urinate to mark their domain and taste the air to determine if the hinds are ready to mate. In fact, stags often wallow in their own urine as the odour helps bring hinds into estrus. If bellowing doesn't see off a competitor, the rival stags then parallel walk to size up their opponent. They may also thrash the ground, scooping up vegetation in their antlers to make them look larger. Then battle commences. The stags lock antlers in a sho shoving match, each stag trying to gain the advantage. Meanwhile, smaller stags, on the edge of the harem, try to mate with the hinds, while the dominant stag is in battle or exhausted following a fight. Shop wisely warns citizen advice. Shoppers seeking to take advantage of the upcoming Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals are being urged to be aware of their rights as consumers and stay vigilant of scams. Citizens, Citizens Advice Sudbury and District has issued a series of tips for shopping wisely ahead of the holiday season. The charity is encouraging shoppers to carefully research where they are buying from and to look for telltale signs of scam vendors such as a branded item that appears much cheaper than on the brand's own website. It also advised people to get clued up on the rights attached to their purchases, including eligibility for a replacement product, a repair for faulty goods or even a full refund. The awareness campaign coincides with National Consumer Week, which was launched by Citizens Advice on Monday in partnership with Trading Standards and the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Colleen Sweeney, Chief Officer of Citizens Advice in Sudbury, said, Across the east of England, purse strings are tightening and financial pressures are increasing every day. With sales season fast approaching, it's vital we recognise the red flags when trying to bag a bargain in the run-up to the holidays. Anyone can be a victim of a scam, and even the savviest of shoppers can be left getting less than they bargained for. You shouldn't feel embarrassed if you're caught out. By knowing how to shop wisely and what to do if something goes wrong, we can better protect ourselves and each other. To contact the Sudbury branch of Citizens Advice directly, telephone 01787 321 For consumer advice, call the Citizens Advice Consumer Helpline on 0808 223 
And now we're looking back with Martin Taylor. Local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor has trawled through his archive to find some of his favourite Bury St Edmunds pictures and stories from the past. In 1972, a building site on the west of Bury St Edmunds near West Garth Gardens was well underway. A combination of houses and chalet bungalows were being built by Deckmar Properties under the guidance of foreman Jack Gladwell. As the site progressed on the south bank of the River Linnet, a startling discovery was made, an Anglo-Saxon cemetery. Work stopped and the archaeologists moved in. It was soon realised that this was no ordinary burial site like those that had been discovered in Northumberland Avenue and Barons Road. Altogether, 68 graves were discovered, dating from around the early 5th to the 7th century AD. Nearly all were burials as opposed to cremations, both pagan and Christian, reflecting differing beliefs as time progressed. One grave stood out from the rest, number 62. It contained the remains of an adult male and some remnants of assorted weapons, but the most outstanding of grave goods was a beautiful pale green glass bucket in near perfect condition. The small bucket with two handles was described as being of exquisite workmanship, similar to earlier Roman glass vessels. The bucket went on loan to Moises Hall Museum with some other finds from the site, but was sold at auction in 1977. The British Rail Pension Fund, which had purchased it, kindly then let it go back to Moises Hall on loan. Eventually it went back to the sale room in 2004, where it sold for an astonishing £116,650, including premium at Bonhams. Appropriately, the housing site is called Saxon Rise and Long Meadow. Questions were asked for many years after. Were any graves missed or are any under, under some of the properties? Deckmar went on to build Paddock Close, just off Westley Road, where, unsurprisingly, nothing was found. Now, there's a question for you. This week's question is, when is the feast day of St Edmund? Is it A, 31st of October, B, the 2nd of November, or C, the 20th of November? Now, if you've had a little think, I'll give you the answer. It's the 20th of November. And this is about um, the Royal Mail. Royal Mail is asking households to post Christmas cards and parcels in plenty of time as it manages its busiest period of the year amid the risk of more industrial action by staff members. The Postal Service is reminding people of the final posting dates for both international and UK deliveries which need to reach their destination before December the 25th. For international deliveries the cut-off for parcels to Australia and New Zealand this year is December the 1st. Meanwhile, letters travelling to European neighbours in Belgium, France and Luxembourg have the latest posting date for international mail of December the 14th. Alongside being Royal Mail's busiest time of the year, Communication Workers' Union plans to call members who collect, sort and deliver parcels and letters 
to take national strike action on November the 24th and November the 25th. The next wave of walkouts may not signal the end of the dispute, with further industrial action possible in early December. The Chief Executive of Abury St Edmunds Charity has spoken of the challenges and difficulties the organisation has overcome as its food bank marks 10 years since opening. Amanda Bloomfield became CEO of Gatehouse Charity 13 years ago and has seen an unprecedented increase in demand over the years which she and her volunteers have worked hard to respond to. This year marks 10 years since the food bank opened within the charity, a momentous occasion for the team that comes during its annual Christmas hamper appeal. The need is definitely rising out there and we don't expect it to stop any time soon, said Amanda. Numbers have increased significantly due to the economic crisis, the Covid crisis and now the cost of living crisis. There is always someone or something that comes up and we've had to, to rise to the, to the challenge. Amanda joined the charity in search of something new after more than 15 years in corporate roles and a lot has changed since she arrived. I saw this job come up and it really looked exciting. They were looking for someone to update the charity and bring it into digital time, she said. There have been huge changes in the charity since I started. There is a lot more structure to what we do, a lot more interaction with the local community and businesses to raise the profile of the charity and a lot of support from local people. She said that second-hand furniture and clothing had grown in popularity over the years as recycling had become more widely accepted, helping to break down the stigma. People are using our services without embarrassment. When I first joined, people felt it was a bit of a secret that they came here, but now it is a bit more open in the community, she said. Gatehouse, formerly the St Louis Family Service, was established in 1986 by a Catholic nun, Sister Helena Moss, of the Order of St Louisa, and focused on providing household items low-income families. I believe she was a force to be reckoned with and if she thought something needed to be done in the community you got on and did it said Amanda. I try and fill those shoes the best I can by responding to whatever the needs in the community. When the food bank launched in, 20, in 2012 it was a collaborative effort that included a handful of small churches who were already hosting donation points to support local families. At the time just 100 Christmas parcels were being created, but this year the charity needs more than 600 to fulfil demand. The ultimate aim would be for food banks not to be required. However, while they are required, it is nice to know that we are here and able to fill that need, and the local community helps us with these donations, Amanda said. I have found the community in Berry to be really friendly, really keen to work together with the same aim. This year, the Berry Free Press is joining up with Gatehouse to help collect donations for their Christmas food bank drive. If you can spare a can or two, you can bring your donations to the Berry Free Press office in Kings Road. Alternatively, those who wish to donate money can do so at www.localgiving.com forward slash charity forward slash gatehouse. The collection will end at 4pm on Monday, November the 28th. And there are gifts, there's a list here of gifts for the Gatehouse Christmas Appeal, from the, uh, which you can leave at the Bravery Press office. Uh, various tins and packets, soups, toiletries, flannels, shampoos and soaps, etc. So if you would like to contribute, 
You can go along to the very free press office. And uh, the next item is uh, comes from the uh, secretary of the Deben Farm Club and is about a farmer who's based in Ukraine and he's explaining how his life has changed. On November the 10th, the club was addressed by three speakers giving an outlook on the European grain market. It was a most interesting meeting. One of the speakers was a Dutchman, Kies Huizinga, living and farming near Cherkase, 200, 200 kilometres south of Kiev in Ukraine. He and his two business partners have been farming peacefully there for 20 years, success, successfully expanding their business from 1,000 to 15,000 hectares. Most of the land is leased because foreigners cannot own land there. He has 5,000 landlords and 10 full-time admin staff employed to deal with all of the tenancy agreements. Their cropping is wheat, barley, soya, sunflowers, sugar beet, maize, and they have 300 hectares of drip-irrigated vegetables. They also have a 2,000-head dairy herd. When Vladimir Putin instructed the Russian army to invade on the 24th of February, Keyes sent his, his wife and two young children back to the Netherlands, but remained in Ukraine with his 400 employees. He has subsequently lost a number of these who have signed up to the Ukrainian army. Nevertheless, he is continuing to farm amid the economic and humanitarian challenges that the Russians have inflicted on him and his staff. Exporting as much grain as he can by road through Romania and Poland, it may take a six-day round trip to get just one load of wheat out of the country. The vegetables they grow are being sold locally. The milk is still being collected and processed by milika into cheese, butter and yoghurt. He has just about finished his 700 hectare sugar beet harvest. He only grew half of his normal acreage this year because he was worried the local processing factory would not have enough energy to process the normal size crop. And drilling for him has gone well. But further east and north, it is predicted that 40% less winter wheat will be grown and 15-20% to 20 of the occupied or front-line land will not get planted. Like all farming businesses in Europe, getting inputs and affording them has been and remains challenging. A lot of his nitrogen fertiliser used to come from Russia, and his local manufacturer has been targeted recently with drone attacks cutting electricity supplies. He was certainly expecting yields to be decreased next harvest, and for a country that is, that is estimated was able to meet the food needs of 600 million people, this will continue to have an impact globally for some time. Keyes was a very enthusiastic speaker, impassioned about his farm and the Ukrainian people. He has emailed me since his talk, inviting us to visit his farm in Ukraine either during or after the war. Key's wife is coordinating an humanitarian charity foundation called the Lion Foundation Kiev. This charity is providing much-needed help to the Ukrainian people, and Keyes asked that if we could give any support, 
it would be gratefully received. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglin Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Ruth, David and Carol, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.